Good afternoon and welcome to Midday Magazine for Wednesday, May 24th. I'm Shelby Herbert. Bristol Bay's commercial salmon fishery can be fast-paced and crowded. Many local fishermen staunchly support a regulation to keep the fishery's competition in check, a rule that limits the size of the boats. And the fleet got a finger-wagging from the Alaska Wildlife Troopers earlier this year, a reminder to keep their boats within that limit. As Izzy Ross reports, the issue is top of mind as fishermen get ready for the upcoming season. Commercial boats must measure 32 feet or less to fish in Bristol Bay. But Captain Aaron Frentzel says wildlife troopers received more complaints than usual about larger vessels last year. So after the season, they went over to boatyards on the east side of the fishery, King Salmon and Naknek, to see what was going on. A lot of the stuff is below the water line that we can't see on the water while we're out on the water inspecting vessels. So we started seeing some areas that have just kind of expanded. Those boats were a little bigger than what's allowed in regulation. The troopers decided to raise awareness among the fleet ahead of the next season. In February, they published a public letter outlining exactly what is included in the 32-foot measurement. Frenzel says they hope fishermen will bring their boat lengths into regulation this year, and troopers will be paying closer attention to what he calls performance-enhancing additions, things like outdrive mounts or hull extensions. Maybe a vessel that's actually 34 feet in length um, or has some kind of adaptation that provides a significant performance benefit to the vessel that's beyond the allowable length. Those are the type of vessels that we'll be taking a closer look at this summer and determining if we need to take enforcement action on. Frenzel says troopers won't be targeting boats for transgressions due to safety or quality equipment. Bristol Bay's 32-foot rule has been a point of debate in many Board of Fisheries meetings over the years. Some fishermen argue that bigger boats could allow for more efficient harvests, better quality, and more money. But others say they would disenfranchise the local fishermen, who may have smaller boats and may not be able to buy into a more competitive fishery. So why did people start calling out bigger boats last year? Frenzel remembers what one fisherman told him. Everything kind of was like an accordion. It got stretched out here and there until all of a sudden there were some vessels that were so stretched out that the flags started being flown by other fishermen. And um, that's what we started looking at. Frenzel says the fishery has also changed a lot in the past 20 years. Newer boats have equipment that may make them a little bigger. This isn't the first time troopers have focused on the issue. Tom Glass is a commercial fisherman who lives in Dillingham. He says troopers were cracking down on the 32-foot limit in the early 90s when he was working as a deckhand. And some fishermen went to drastic measures to comply by shortening the bow of their boat. Some would just grind off a couple inches and... Others were cut off like two feet. They were too long by two feet or maybe more. At one point, Glass says, someone took a cut-off boat nose and threw it in the brush near the AC store in downtown Dillingham. And after a while, there's a whole pile up in that area there of noses from the boats. It's just kind of funny, everybody getting their, their noses cut off that season. Glass says there are plenty of those boats still around. Some of the fiberglass vessels have caps bolted on with the help of some sealant, while aluminum boats are welded up. Today, Glass says he's happy with the 32-foot limit, though he could definitely use an extra few feet in his engine room. Right now, he says it's pretty crowded. In Dillingham, I'm Izzy Ross. 
Cloak on Prince of Wales Island went about five months without a police chief or even a police department. But that changed last Friday when Corey White was sworn in as the chief of police for the town of 800. Reagan Miller reports from Ketchikan. Corey White moved to Cloak from Polson, Montana on a reservation. He was looking for a change. I've always been the person in every department that I've worked at that's been a problem solver and helped to make it better and more improved from what it was when I got there. And, and talking to a lot of people, it sounds like there was a lot of things that need to be done here, updating, you know, enforcing laws and different things. And I like a good challenge, and so it kind of was right up my alley. White replaces Terry Stonecipher, Kloak's longtime police chief who died in early January. Stonecipher had been the chief of police since 2005. When he died, the town had been relying on Alaska State Troopers and Village Public Safety Officers for emergencies or Craig's Police Department about six miles away if they were on hand. White says one of his priorities will be combating the addictive drug fentanyl. It's a synthetic opioid around 50 times stronger than heroin, and it's been linked to a recent spike in overdoses in Alaska. White says it was a big problem in Montana, too, where he says it was an everyday issue. The biggest thing here that I'm hearing is just the presence of law enforcement and, and getting involved in investigating the drug issue because of you know, are aware the fentanyl across the United States and is becoming uh, just out of hand. It's a major issue, and people are losing their lives, and so I want to really hammer that forward. White is looking forward to getting to know Klawak better. He says he wants residents to be open and honest. Uh, the biggest thing I can tell you is that um, I'm open, I'm honest, and I appreciate everybody's efforts in letting me know what's going on, and together as a team and a community, we can accomplish a lot more than if they were to withhold information and not be willing to communicate with me. Cloak's mayor, Nick Nickerson, says White is a good fit for the community. He was sworn in earlier this month. He understands small-town community. He understands, you know, educating the community and utilizing the resources that are available in our community and on Prince of Wales Island, you know, so the community is very excited to have him. But Cloak's police department is still critically understaffed. Nickerson says progress is being made to hire more officers. A couple of applications have been reviewed with at least one likely hire in the mix. And as of last week, we did receive two more applications, and those will go up to the state safety council for approval. Nickerson says the department can employ four officers. In Ketchikan, I'm Reagan Miller. Although climate change has left some Alaska Native communities just a storm away from destruction, the struggle to get help from government agencies can be just as daunting. An international human rights group hopes hopes to change that. The Organization of American States is coming to Alaska this week to hear directly from tribes. Salote Songo oversees a branch of the OAS that advocates for indigenous peoples displaced by climate change. She says her mission is to make sure tribes have a say in what happens and are treated with dignity. There's a lot of commonalities around the issues that they're experiencing. They're on the front lines of the climate crisis. They've been exposed to years and years of government neglect. 
While state and federal governments do respond to disasters caused by climate change, Sango says the efforts fall short of helping communities make a full recovery or adapt to ongoing threats. The OAS has partnered with groups like the Alaska Institute for Justice to increase funding and improve government response. The Institute's director, Robin Bronin, calls the climate crisis one of the greatest human rights challenges of our time. Despite that, she says government if efforts are scattered across too many agencies with no real structure in place to address problems in a holistic, systematic way that preserves human dignity. There is an urgency to the climate crisis that the government is struggling to respond to. And our hope is with this visit that it will elevate this issue so that communities all over the United States and especially in Alaska get the resources that they need to implement their adaptation strategies. Bronin says it will take hundreds of millions of dollars to help communities move to safety or recover from disasters. But for indigenous peoples, there are also cultural, economic, and social impacts that can be equally devastating. The OAS's Inter-American Commission on Human Rights will visit two communities on Thursday. Nunapachuk on the Kuskokwim River and Quick-Gillingok on the Bering Sea coast. On Friday, it heads to Kivalina, a barrier island on the Chukchi Sea. All three communities plan to move to higher ground. The commission started this week in Louisiana, where it met with several tribes, which are also being forced to relocate due to climate change. While reports of gray whale strandings along the Pacific coast have jumped since 2019, there's at least one place where these whales seem to be thriving. As Meredith Reddick reports, hundreds of gray whales migrating from Mexico to their Arctic feeding grounds are stopping in Sitka along their route. Sitka has always been home to charismatic megafauna like humpback whales and stellar sea lions. But over the past few years, a new marine all-star has emerged. We were pulling into an anchor uh, anchorage off of Shoals Point. We're just going to sit down there to uh, go to shore and go walk walk the beach. And these two gray whales came right up to us. That's Blaine Anderson, captain of the sailboat Bob, describing an encounter with a gray whale just west of Sitka. Gray whales have often visited Sitka, but over the past few years, boaters and biologists have seen an unusual increase in gray whale activity. We were just talking to somebody um, up in the parking lot who said at um, one point last year he estimated over 700 uh, whales, gray whales. 700 might be on the high end, but whale biologist Lauren Wild says the number of gray whales in Sitka Sound used to hover around 10 or 20. Since 2019, it's been closer to 150. As Wild says, There's whale soup out here. Most of the news about gray whales in recent years has been pretty dismal. In May 2019, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration declared an unusual mortality event due to elevated strandings of West Coast gray whales. Before that, a 2015 and 2016 marine heat wave, sometimes referred to as the blob, devastated Pacific Coast fauna from whales to seabirds. In Sitka, though... If people have been seeing them, they're seeing whales rolling around and playing with each other. They're seeing a lot of feeding behavior, um, a lot of social behavior. Like humpbacks, which are commonly seen in Sitka Sound, gray whales use baleen to feed. 
Unlike humpbacks, gray whales feed in the shallows, filtering silt and sand to get to tiny critters like shrimp. Gray whales are smaller and often covered in parasitic barnacles and long scars from rolling around on the rocks. Wild usually studies humpbacks and sperm whales, but the gray whale influx has piqued her interest. While it's not entirely clear what is bringing this barnacle-covered baleen bonanza to the waters of Sitka Sound, Wild has a few ideas. So we sort of wondered if the marine heat wave maybe disrupted some of the, the reliability of food in the Bering Sea and Chukchi Seas in the summer, and if that possibly sort of prompted these whales to be looking for more opportunistic places to forage along their migration routes so they didn't, weren't relying so much on those food sources. The food source, likely herring eggs on the outer edge of Cruzoff Island. If whales are migrating by and they just happen to be there at the right time, they might sort of start seeing more of that herring spawn um, and it might pique their attention. Pacific herrings spawn each spring in the waters around Sitka, and these fish and their eggs are an important food source for marine organisms and humans alike. Herring row in Sitka is already a hotly contested resource, and now these motivated mysticetes may have joined the competition. Wild says that the timing and location of gray whale sightings correspond to areas of herring spawn, She also points to observations from Alaska Department of Fish and Game spawn surveys. They'll be diving and see gray whales around their dive boat and stuff. Um, So they're certainly in the same area that those eggs are. And then they've seen a few times, they've seen sort of, you know, kelp that looks, you know, see kelp beds that look sort of shredded, like that they're imagining is probably gray whales coming through and sucking up up eggs off the kelp and rolling around in it. Understanding what these whales eat is one part of the puzzle. Wild is also hoping to start building a catalog to identify and track individual whales to figure out which whales are coming to Sitka and where else they're going along their migration route. In the meantime, both Wild and Anderson urge boaters to be cautious around gray whales, which may be more likely to approach humans than the average Sitka humpback. In Mexico, boaters can legally approach and interact with gray whales. They get chin scratches and they, you know, I've seen pictures of people kissing them and it's uh, something that perhaps they've gotten used to. The whales may ignore political borders, but Alaska boaters are still required to follow the Marine Mammal Protection Act. To avoid harassing whales, NOAA encourages boaters to stay 100 yards away and put engines into neutral if a whale approaches. We don't know what will happen in the future with these new visitors or what the implications are for the West Coast gray whale population as a whole, but for now, it seems that this struggling population has found a haven in Sitka. Feeding, socializing, and even, as Anderson has observed a few times, mating. It was all supposed to happen down in Mexico, but it does seem like they're continuing their their frisky ways up in, as we call it, romantic Sitka Sound. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Meredith Reddick. Thank you so much for joining me for Midday Magazine. My name is Shelby Herbert, and I report for KFSK.